Welcome to Sunday Sila and uh, our Long Parta commemoration. The schedule is similar, but not exactly the same, although we will try to stay on our normal schedule for people to come and go as they would have expected. So we'll do a guided meditation now um, using part of a reading from Long Parta. Uh, after that, Margaret will read um, a short biography of Ajahn Chah so we can really get to know him and invite him into the space. And then I have some thoughts uh, from Longcore Pisano that uh, he sent to us for today, his recollections of Ajahn Chah and his thoughts on our practice. And then we'll open it to Sakula in the group for sharing and reflections. And we'll close up. 11.30, or close, <laughs> uh, with a chant, and we'll um, reset the room, and then we have a potluck meal offering downstairs. Meditation is the way of developing the mind so that it may be a base for the arising of wisdom. Here, the breath is a physical foundation. We call it Anapanasati, or mindfulness of breathing. Here we make breathing our mental object. We take this object of meditation because it's the simplest and because it has been the heart of meditation since the ancient times. When a good occasion arises to do sitting meditation, sit cross-legged, Keep your back straight and erect. Say to yourself, now I will let go of all my burdens and concerns. You don't want anything that will cause you worry. Let go of all concerns for the time being. Now fix your attention on the breath. Then breathe in and breathe out. In developing awareness of breathing, don't intentionally make the breath long or short. Neither make it strong or weak. Just let it flow normally and naturally. Mindfulness and self-awareness arising from the mind will know the in-breath and the out-breath. Be at ease. Don't think about anything. No need to think of this or that. The only thing you have to do is fix your attention on the breathing in and breathing out. <clears throat> You have nothing else to do but that. Keep your mindfulness fixed on the in and out breaths as they occur. Be aware of the beginning, middle, and end of each breath. On inhalation, the beginning of the breath is at the nose tip, the middle at the heart, and the end in the abdomen. On exhalation, it's just the reverse. The beginning of the breath is in the abdomen, the middle at the heart, and the end at the nose tip. Develop the awareness of the breath at the nose tip, at the heart, in the abdomen. Then in reverse, in the abdomen, at the heart, at the nose tip. Focusing the attention on these three points will relieve all worries. Just don't think of anything else. 
Keep your attention on the breath. Perhaps other thoughts will enter the mind. It will take up other themes and distract you. Don't be concerned. Just take up the breathing again as your object of attention. The mind may get caught up in judging and investigating your moods, but continue to practice being constantly aware of the beginning, middle, and the end of each breath. Eventually, the mind will be aware of the breath at these three points all the time. When you do this practice for some time, the mind and body will get accustomed to the work. Fatigue will disappear, the body will feel lighter, and the breath will become more and more refined. Mindfulness and self-awareness will protect the mind and watch over it. We practice like this until the mind is peaceful and calm, until it is one. One means that the mind will be completely absorbed in the breathing, that it doesn't separate from the breath. The mind will be unconfused and at ease. It will know the beginning, middle, and end of the breath and remain steadily fixed on it. Then, when the mind is peaceful, we fix our attention on the in-breath and out-breath at the nose tip only. We don't have to follow it up and down to the abdomen and back. Just concentrate on the tip of the nose where the breath comes in and goes out. This is called calming the mind, making it relaxed and peaceful. When tranquility arises, the mind stops. It stops with its single object, the breath. This is what's known as making the mind peaceful so wisdom may arise. This is the beginning, the foundation of our practice. You should try to practice this every day, wherever you may be. Whether at home, in a car, lying or sitting down, you should be mindfully aware and watch over the mind constantly. This is called mental training, which should be practiced in all four postures. Not just sitting, but standing, walking, and lying as well. The point is that we should know what the state of the mind is at each moment. And to be able to do this, we must be constantly mindful and aware. Is the mind happy or suffering? Is it confused? Is it peaceful? Getting to, the, getting to know the mind in this manner allows it to become tranquil. And when it does become tranquil, wisdom will arise. With the tranquil mind, investigate the meditation subject, which is the body from the top of the head to the soles of the feet, then back to the head. Do this over and over again. Look and see the hair of the head, the hair of the body, the nails, teeth, and skin. In this meditation, we will see that this whole body is composed of four elements, earth, water, fire, and wind. The hard and solid parts of our body make up the earth element the liquid and flowing parts, the water element. Winds that pass up and down our body make up the wind element, and the heat in our body, the fire element. Taken together, they compose what we call a human being. However, when the body is broken down into its component parts, only these four elements remain. 
The Buddha taught that there is no being per se, no human, no Thai, no Westerner, no person, but that ultimately there are only these four elements, that's all. We assume there is a person or a being, but in reality, there isn't anything of the sort. Whether taken separately as earth, water, fire, and wind, or taken together, labeling what they form a human being. They're all impermanent, subject to suffering and not self. They're all unstable, uncertain, and in a state of constant change. Not stable for a single moment. Our body is unstable, altering and changing constantly. Hair changes, nails change, teeth changes. Teeth change, skin changes, everything changes completely. Our mind too is always changing. It isn't a self or substance. It isn't really us, not really them, although it may think so. Maybe it will think about killing itself. Maybe it will think of happiness or of suffering, all sorts of things. It's unstable. If we don't have wisdom and we believe this mind of ours, it will lie to us continually. And we alternately suffer and be happy. The mind is an uncertain thing. This body is uncertain. Together they are impermanent. Together they are a source of suffering. Together they are devoid of self. These, the Buddha pointed out, are neither a being, nor a person, nor a self, nor a soul, nor us, nor they. They are merely elements, earth, water, fire, and wind, elements only. When the mind sees this, it will rid itself of attachment, which holds that I am beautiful, I am good, I am evil, I am suffering, I have, I this, or I that. You will experience a state of unity, for you'll have seen that all of mankind is basically the same. There is no I, there are only elements. When you contemplate and see impermanence, suffering, and not self, there will no longer be clinging to a self, a being. The mind which sees this will give rise to nibida, disenchantment and dispassion. It will see all things only as impermanent, suffering, and not self. The mind then stops. The mind is dhamma. Greed, hatred, and delusion will then diminish and recede little by little until finally there is only mind, just the pure mind. This is called practicing meditation. Venerable Ajahn Chah was born on June 17, 1918, in a small village near the town of Uban Ratchatani, Northeast Thailand. After finishing his basic schooling, he spent three years as a novice before returning to lay life to help his parents on the farm. At the age of 20, however, he decided to resume monastic life. And on April 26, 1939, he received Upasampada Bhikkhu ordination. 
Ajahn Chah's early monastic life followed a traditional pattern of studying Buddhist teachings and the Pali scriptural language. In his fifth year, his father fell seriously ill and died, a blunt reminder of the frailty and precariousness of human life. It caused him to think deeply about life's real purpose. For although he had studied extensively and gained some proficiency in Pali, he seemed no nearer to a personal understanding of the end of suffering. Feelings of disenchantment set in, and finally, in 1946, he abandoned his studies and set off on a mendicant pilgrimage. He walked some 400 kilometers to central Thailand, sleeping in forests and gathering alms food in the villages on the way. He took up residence in a monastery where the Vinaya, monastic discipline, was carefully studied and practiced. While there, he was told about Venerable Ajahn Moon, Muridatta, a most highly respected meditation master. Keen to meet such an accomplished teacher, Ajahn Chah set off on foot to the northeast in search of him. At this time, Ajahn Chah was wrestling with a crucial problem. He had studied the teachings on morality, meditation, and wisdom, which the text presented in minute and refined detail, but he could not see how they could actually be put into practice. Ajahn Moon told him that although the teachings are indeed extensive, at their heart, they are very simple. With mindfulness established, it is seen that everything arises in the heart-mind. Right there is the true path of practice. The succinct and direct teaching was a revelation for Ajahn Chah and transformed his approach to practice. The way was clear. For the next seven years, Ajahn Chah practiced in the style of the austere forest tradition, wandering through the countryside in quest of quiet and secluded places for developing meditation. He lived in tiger and cobra infested jungles, using reflections on death to penetrate to the true meaning of life. On one occasion, he practiced in a cremation ground to challenge and eventually overcome his fear of death. While he was in the cremation ground, a rainstorm left him cold and drenched. He faced the utter desolation and loneliness of a wandering homeless monk. In 1954, after years of wandering, he was invited back to his home village. He settled close by in a fever-ridden, haunted forest called Papong. Despite the hardships of malaria, poor shelter, and sparse food, disciples gathered around him in increasing numbers. That was the beginning of the first monastery in the Ajahn Chah tradition, Wat Papong. With time, branch monasteries were established at other locations. In 1967, an American monk came to stay at Wakapong. The newly ordained Venerable Sumedho had just spent his first Vasan range retreat, practicing intensive meditation at a monastery near the Laotian border. Although his efforts had borne some fruit, Venerable Sumedho realized that he needed a teacher who could train him in all aspects of monastic life. By chance, one of Ajahn Chah's monks, one who happened to speak a little English, visited the monastery where Venerable Sumedha was staying. Upon hearing about Ajahn Chah, he asked to take leave of his preceptor and went back to Wat Pong with the monk. Ajahn Chah willingly accepted the new disciple, but insisted he receive no special allowances for being a Westerner. He would have to eat the same simple alms food and practice in the same way as any other monk at Wat Pong. 
The training there was quite harsh and forbidding. Ajahn Chah often pushed his monks to their limits to test their powers of endurance so that they would develop patience and resolution. He sometimes initiated long and seemingly pointless work projects in order to frustrate their attachment to tranquility. The emphasis was always on surrendering to the way things are, and great stress was placed on strict observance of the Vinayan. In the course of events, other Westerners came through Wat Kapong. By the time Venerable Sumedha was a bhikkhu of five vasas, and Ajahn Chah considered him competent enough to teach, some of these new monks had also decided to stay on and train there. In the hot season of 1975, Venerable Sumedho and a handful of Western bhikkhus spent some time living in a forest not far from Wat Mekong. The local villagers there asked them to stay on and Ajahn Chah consented. The Wat Pananachan International Forest Monastery came into being and Venerable Sumedho became the abbot of the first monastery in Thailand to be run by and for English-speaking monks. In 1977, Ajahn Chah was invited to visit Britain by the English Sangha Trust, a charity with the aim of establishing a local resident Buddhist Sangha. He took Venerable Sumedho and Venerable Kimadamo along to England. Seeing the serious interest there, he left them in London at the Hampstead Vihara with two of his other Western disciples who were there visiting Europe. He returned to Britain in 1979, at which time the monks were leaving London to begin Chiphurst Buddhist Monastery in Sussex. He then went on to America and Canada to visit and teach. After this trip, and again in 1981, Ajahn Chah spent the reins away from Wat Pekong, since his health was failing due to the debilitating effects of diabetes. As his illness worsened, he would use his body as a teacher, a living example of the impermanence of all things. He constantly reminded people to endeavor to find true refuge within themselves, since he would not be able to teach for very much longer. Before the end of the rains of 1981, he was taken to Bangkok for an operation. However, the procedure did little to improve his condition. Within a few months, he stopped talking and gradually he lost control of his limbs until he was virtually paralyzed and bedridden. From then on, he was diligently and lovingly nursed and attended by devoted disciples, grateful for the occasion to offer service to the teacher who so patiently and compassionately showed the way to so many. I reached out to La Prapasano. <laughs> he is a he is our uh, main monastic spiritual advisor. He is the guiding elder at Abayagiri Monastery in California, and he was a student of Ajahn Chah, an early student of Ajahn Chah, uh, as well as the um, abbot of Wapananachak that uh, Margaret mentioned. <clears throat> He's traveling in Thailand right now. Um, but I reached out to him uh, to see if he would offer a few thoughts to us, uh, encouragement of our practice. And he sent back <laughs> he's, he sent back some uh, he sent back some thoughts for us and also um, picked a few of his writings that he's done in the past about Ajahn Shah for us to share as well. So 
I'll read this to you. I, I feel lucky to have it, and uh, and I'm appreciating how much uh, Longcore Pasano gives to us. Greetings from Thailand and from Wakabong, Ajahn Chah's monastery in Thailand, where we are here observing the commemorations of Ajahn Chah from January 12th to the 17th. This is an occasion of recollecting the life of Ajahn Chah by listening to teachings, chanting and dedication, meditating, and just by being together in the same place. There are many hundreds of monks and nuns and many thousands of lay people. The emotion of faith and devotion is palpable. Although he passed away just over 30 years ago, the recollection of his life and his teaching is very strong. It is truly amazing that the son of a simple farmer in a rural corner of Thailand was able to reach so many people with his example. On recollecting Long Cha and his teaching, what comes to mind was his ability to focus our attention on what is truly important. I will give a couple of examples. Perhaps to begin is a memory of the first contact I had with his teaching. This was before I actually met him. I was newly ordained. I was newly ordained and living at Wat Phuong Vipassana in Thonburi. Somebody had written a couple of teachings down that inspired me and made me want to meet him. A person came to visit Longpur Chal and asked him what the heart of the Buddha's teaching was. Longpur's response was to pick up a piece of wood that was nearby and ask the person, is this a big piece of wood or a small piece? The person was confused and uncertain as to how to answer and wasn't able to respond. Longpur waited for a minute and then explained, if you wanted to pick your teeth, you would say this was a big piece of wood. <laughs> But if you wanted to build a house, you would say it was a small piece. It all depends on the desire. This is the central core of the Buddha's teaching. We have to understand desire because we are constantly under its sway, but rarely have an understanding as to how it affects us and how it colors our world. If we paid attention, to the central truth, we would soon realize the goal of the Buddhist dispensation. I didn't read this ahead of time, so I could experience it together with, with everyone. So that's, I'm feeling quite delighted right now. <laughs> Another thing that is typical of Longcore Chow's teaching and approach is to practice, uh, approach to practice is his emphasis on balance, or that which is just enough or just right. Getting things in a right mix, in a right proportion, the right tone, and the right feeling, as opposed to some fixed doctrine or some fixed kind of methodology. Longford Shaw was very concerned with how to get the right balance and how to get things in harmony. It was a flavor that permeated his teaching and approach to practice. Longford gave a lot of encouragement to pay attention to one's experience so that one actually felt what it is like to be in balance and ultimately, ultimately what it is like to have no suffering, to feel peace and coolness. One of the first talks of Longford Cha that was translated in the early days was right view, the place of coolness. When our view aligns with Dhamma, then there will be a place of coolness, settling or freedom from suffering. This is an experience. It is not a doctrinal idea. 
To illustrate this kind of balance, Blancorcha gave the image of a farmer who was getting ready to plant his fields. The farmer takes his rice and throws it out into his fields. One might see this as an act of throwing away something or getting rid of something, but the farmer is throwing rice onto properly prepared fields. They will mature and bud into new rice plants and multiply the amount the farmer already has. If the farmer did not have the willingness to throw that rice away into the fields, he would not really get anything in return. Our practice is similar. We have to approach it with a sense of letting go. We have to put in the effort, even though the result might not be apparent, but of course it has to be in the right way. As the farmer would not throw his rice all over the place, but solely in a prepared wet field in order to have the result come to fruition. So we must have a willingness to relinquish the desire to see an immediate result. The result will come on its own when the causes are right. Another image for balance that Long Chai used is that of raising a child. A good parent has to be attentive to the appropriate time and to be has to be attentive to the appropriate time to be encouraging and nurturing in a gentle way. They also have to be attentive to the time to be strict and to have clear boundaries. If a child has been raised with an excess of either way, then it would suffer and not grow up in a wholesome way. In the same way with the mind, if all we do is constantly force it, harangue it, and instill all sorts of fear in it, then the mind is not going to be happy. It is not going to be bright. There has to be balance. There is a time in our training that we have to be quite disciplined with ourselves and to be willing to push ourselves a bit. Also, there is a time when we have to cut ourselves some slack or give ourselves an opportunity to relax. The way that works is the one that gives the result of peace and understanding. The emphasis is on balance. There is no set formula. Longbrocha was able to teach in ways that encouraged his disciples. He is the image of the coconut tree. Just as a coconut tree takes up its nutrients from the soil and the water surrounding it, both the things that people would consider clean or dirty, good or bad, we also have to take up all of our experiences and transform them into peace and wisdom. Longcore's legacy is probably his ability to focus us on the qualities such as right view and balance, and then encourage us that we actually that we can actually do it. This is for us. That was all for us, but then he ends with, I hope that your day of practice and recollection is fruitful and that you use this opportunity for planting your own seeds of wisdom and peace. Now I'd like to um, open it, offer Sakula an opportunity to offer us a reflection. So in listening to this, what comes up for me, my, my experience of Ajahn Chah is through Ajahn Pasano. Ajahn Chah, as I have learned through the example of Ajahn Pasano, was very um, strict and uh, encouraging and determined on the precepts. Um, 
and yet at the same time was very he did mention that you have to have if when you dam up a river you have to have an overflow or you you bust the dam through so when we take the precepts the as we learn to balance with our training with the precepts we learn to not beat ourselves up when we break them but to recognize when we um, the the difference the value of sticking with them the value of being compassionate with ourselves when we don't stick with them the value of coming back to them um, and the value of uh, just finding balance so if we come into the precepts and well, I'll take them while I'm here at the center or at the monastery, and then that's it. You get a certain amount of value, and you know, that lasts for an hour or two. <laughs> but you don't get to see, you don't get to learn to balance with the restraint. So I like this, this uh, talking about balance when you think about. Um, what comes to my mind when I was first learning to ski, I was quite nervous. I didn't like falling down the mountain, that feeling of, you know, no control. And then I learned to fall. You know, my goal wasn't to fall. But then when I learned that it's, it's to fall gracefully, then I could get up and go back down. And the most joy I got from skiing, my skiing days are over now, but the most joy I got from skiing was when I was in balance and coming down the mountain in full balance. And when I first started this, I didn't in, have the benefit or the joy that comes from being fully balanced with something that, you know, felt completely unnatural at first. And it's the same thing with the precepts. You know, we don't beat ourselves up, a place of balance when it's too much for us and we find that you know water is our, our discipline is sloughing over we're just not ready we're not strong enough that's okay you know and so you know determining to find that balance in within the restraint will give us ultimately the best joy the most joy uh, the most maturity the most benefit Ajahn Chah once uh, said, thus have I heard from Bumper Pisano, uh, Ajahn Chah once uh, was walking, this was, actually I've heard this story from several months, but this was in the earlier parts of his uh, community life with his monastery. He was um, walking through the monastery and he noticed one of his uh, young monks had picked up a pot of tea and literally was pouring it into his mouth. This is not okay. <laughs> it's not according to their uh, ways within the community. And Ajahn Chah lost it. He just got mad and he literally chased 
the young monk, <laughs> the monster, with the intent to beat him up. He's that man. And it and then he stopped. And he was like, oh my gosh. And he recognized his anger and his buying into it and his physical aggression and his intent to harm. And he went into his cootie and he didn't come out. I believe it was three days. It may have been longer, but he didn't come out until he faced his anger, recognized it and put it down. And from that time on, the monks never saw him lose his anger again. You know, and he didn't beat himself up. You know, he just uh, recognized, oh, that was my limit. I think the young monk probably recognized it too. <laughs> and this is a great example. You know, we just, we were within a community of a number of people who are living on precepts or learning about the precepts. Uh, and some people who are, don't take the precepts and that's okay too. They're still part of the community. You know, we have space for where we're at. And those that are living on the precepts, it's, it's challenging. And you have a community of people that are doing it with you. We don't put each other down. We don't scold. And we need to do this for ourselves as well. We don't put ourselves down. We don't scold ourselves. We just, oh, okay. It's just... You know, we're just not to the place where we've gained the balance within this particular study of restraint. But there is uh, positivity. There is a benefit. And the more, the longer we do it, the stronger we get, the more we recognize how it settles, how it frees us from our desires, how it um, lightens uh, us up. And our concentration becomes easier. One of the things that Nampropasana says over and over, says over and over, is a happy mind is an easily concentrated mind. And, and believe it or not, the precepts help and encourage a happy mind. So that's my understanding, my influence that I've gained from uh, this lineage. And this community. I really enjoy being um, part of um, practice with people that are on this path together. <laughs>